60 years ago this week, our predecessors at Christ Community Church dedicated this sanctuary to the worship of God. And uh, we want to mark that occasion by uh, taking a break from our Romans 5 through 8 series and looking at some psalm texts and others that speak to, I guess you have to listen to the sermon to see what they speak to. We begin with Psalm 84, if you wish to, find a copy of God's Word and follow as we read how lovely is God and the worship of God, Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. <laughs> Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing to see withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O oh Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Like the psalmist, we long for God and the worship of God. In fact, we have even more reason than the psalmist did to admire him. For in the person of Jesus, our beautiful God came to live among us, die for us, save us, indwell us, and so we treasure and honor our fairest Lord Jesus. Six score years ago, our forefathers and foremothers brought forth on this temple site a new sanctuary dedicated to the proposition that God is beautiful and therefore worship is a matter of beauty. And I'm glad they did. I'm not sure that they would have put it that way, that God is beautiful and therefore worship is a matter of aesthetics. Now I realize, boys and girls, I just used a word that you probably don't know. Aesthetics. In fact, many years ago when I used that word in a sermon, I gave Mrs. Grubb a heads up in advance and she prepared a children's bulletin that had a place for you to write the definition. I don't think we have that today, but I can tell you what I mean by that fancy grown-up word, aesthetics. It's basically, it's the study of beauty. And even though you might not have known what the word meant, God gave you an aesthetic sense. 
just as he made you with a moral sense to tell you the difference between right and wrong, and just as he gave you an intellect so that you can discern what is true and false, God gave you, all of us, an aesthetic sense that helps us distinguish between what's beautiful and what's ugly. And the people from our church who were around 60 years ago trying not to look at anybody, (laughs) prayed and planned and gave and worked to create a beautiful worship space. I haven't polled them, and I haven't read anything to this effect in the history of our church, but I wouldn't be surprised if 60 years ago there was some discussion, some debate, about um, the details. Why do we need a vaulted ceiling? Why do we need a big stained glass window? Um, Why do we need to spend that much money? There's so many practical needs in this world. Let's us be practical. I I can imagine that there were people who felt that way. Garrison Keillor, the storyteller, um, tells a story, uh, uh, an illustration about his own people up in rural Minnesota. Um, in in a talk called Lutheran Architecture. He says, if you want to find the Lutheran church in town, look for a building that looks like a feed store with an education wing. (laughs) He said, my people are practical people. Why would we pretty up the place? Just to attract a bunch of Catholics? (laughs) And of course, you can worship God in a building that looks like a feed store. You can worship God anywhere. And certainly, you can make a case for simplicity and practicality. If I were helping to plan a new sanctuary, I would want to make sure that the people in the planning process remembered the relief of the poor, remembered foreign missions and local missions and lots of things that have a claim on the church's budget. But I would also want to say... God is beautiful, and therefore, worship of God is a matter of beauty. You won't find that exact sentence anywhere in the Bible, but it does, I think, summarize a theme that you can find running throughout the Bible. First, God is beautiful, isn't he? (laughs) We sing that, O Lord, you're beautiful, your face is all I seek. We, We sing Um, Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. Beautiful, isn't he? Isn't he beautiful? Where did the songwriters get get that idea? They got it from the Bible. Psalm 27, verse 4, David writes, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's the one thing that David wanted more than anything, to be able to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Isaiah 33, 17 promises that one day we will see the king in his beauty. Psalm 29, Psalm 96 speak of the beauty of holiness. Holiness is beautiful, winsome, attractive. Every biblical reference to God's glory is a reference to beauty. For 
glory is simply the, the shining forth of all of God's perfections for the admiration of his creatures. That's, that's what glory is. The shining forth of all of God's attributes so that his creatures may admire him. Well, what difference does it make to know that God is beautiful? All the difference in the world. See, we experience God as we experience life, not only in terms of true and false, good and bad, right and wrong, but in terms of the beautiful and the ugly. And we are attracted to God, not only because he's truth, but because he's beautiful. The psalmists speak of delighting in God. That's aesthetic pleasure. And every exhortation in the Bible to praise the Lord is an invitation to aesthetic response. We are called upon to admire and treasure and praise the one who is supremely worthy and beautiful. See, it's not enough to have an accurate knowledge of God. We are to be drawn to God. It's not enough to argue people into orthodox belief. We want to commend the beauty of the biblical vision. Another song that we sometimes sing has this line, May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win. As we seek to spread the good news, we, we realize that it is not enough to just argue people out of their unbelief. We want to commend the beauty of God and of his Son so that they are drawn to him. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. God is beautiful. When I first started thinking about this sermon some time ago, I thought about having three points instead of two. Now you've heard me say God is beautiful, and therefore worship is a matter of beauty. I, I thought about a kind of an in-between statement so that my main idea would be something like this. Since God is beautiful, and since God created us capable of experiencing and expressing beauty, then our experience and expression of worshiping God is a matter of beauty. But that's a little long for a sermon main idea. And if I hope that anybody would remember it after we left here, I, no, not going to happen. But I still think that middle point is worth taking a little detour on. Not only is God beautiful, and therefore worship is a matter of beauty, but there is that truth in between, that God made us in his likeness capable of appreciating, experiencing beauty. And I'll take a couple minutes on that detour. Um, this is why, because God made us in his image, that we go, wow, when we're at Niagara Falls. Or why we care how food is presented. Or why we create flower beds and fountains, sonnets and songs. We notice texture, color, 
clean lines. Because God, who is beautiful, made us in his image, capable of recognizing and appreciating beauty. Way back in Genesis chapter 4, the human race begins to farm and manufacture and make music. We read that Jubal was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. Right from the beginning, to be human meant not just growing food and creating clothing and shelter, but expressing ourselves through art. Some of you young people are gifted artists. You sing, you act, you draw, you paint, you write. And in the years to come, you may receive some advice from adults in your life You'll be told that, um, except for a few who are exceptionally talented and lucky, artists are starving artists. <laughs> that is, if you really, um, you really want to make a living, you better not count on art to do it for you. You should listen to that advice, but know that it's not the whole story either. The financial bottom line is not the bottom line. The glory of God is the bottom line. And if God has wired you and gifted you to express and reflect his beauty through your art, find a way to do it. Sing, play, act to the glory of God. Well, it might be worth noting that Jubal back there in Genesis 4 and the rest of them were part of the ungodly line of Cain that God eventually destroyed in the flood. Their sin, however, did not eradicate the image of God in them. Their sin marred that image, that likeness to God, but it didn't erase it, and it certainly didn't erase their aesthetic sense. Even as sinners, they were capable of creating beautiful things. Even criminals are capable of creating and appreciating beauty. There's a scene in Shawshank Redemption where Andy Dufresne, wrongly convicted of murdering his wife and someone else, is sentenced to two consecutive life terms. In this scene, he's working in the, the prison library, and he comes across some classical music records that had been donated, and uh, in the process, finds a beautiful operatic piece. And even though it's against prison regulations, he begins to play this record and broadcast it throughout the whole prison system, every cell, the yards, and a guard comes to ask him what he's doing, and he locks the door so that the guard can't get in and lets the music blast full strength through the speakers. Everybody in the prison stops and listens to this like nothing they'd heard since they were incarcerated. And at this point, Red, the character played by Morgan Freeman, comments, 
I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are better left unsaid. I'd like to think that they were singing about something so beautiful that it can't be expressed in words. It makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and farther than anyone in that great place dared to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made those walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free. Beauty can do that, even for tough criminals. Sin does not wipe out our aesthetic sense. Neither does poverty. A young pastor took his first charge in Appalachia, and one thing that disturbed him was how people in his congregation wasted money on beautiful things that he thought were impractical. He could hardly afford to put food on the table, let alone flowers on the table. And he made a comment about this in a sermon, and afterwards one of his parishioners came up to him and said, Pastor, even us poor folk like our pretties. The budget may not allow you for expensive pretties, but as long as we're human, we will find a way to create, possess, and enjoy beauty. Created in God's image, we will make motets and movies and manicured lawns, cathedrals and Cape Cod houses with nice lines, paintings and picturesque bridges. We will create well-turned phrases, well-designed skyscrapers, well-drawn cartoons, well-executed concertos, well-conceived, spirit-filled corporate worship. Worship, too, is an aesthetic expression. It's more than that, but it's not less. So let's get back to the sermon. The detour's over. The part about God creating us in his likeness and therefore capable of experiencing and expressing beauty. The main ideas are God is beautiful. And therefore, worship is a matter of beauty. If you haven't learned it elsewhere, learn it from the psalmists. They found God beautiful, as we've already seen. They found God's word beautiful. Psalm 119. Your word is wonderful. Your word is the theme of my song. Your word is more precious than silver or gold. Your word is sweeter than honey. I delight in your word. I love your word. I am in awe of your word. I rejoice in your word. Oh, how I love your word. C.S. Lewis said, this is the language of a man ravished by moral beauty. It is good, Psalm 92 says. It is good to praise the Lord and make music. The little Hebrew word good can also mean Beautiful, showing how the aesthetic and spiritual concerns blend in the biblical vision. The psalmists not only use the language of beauty, they craft beautiful prayers and songs to say what they want to say about God. Now, you shouldn't imagine that the psalms were somehow dictated or written off the cuff. There is evidence that they were uh, written and 
rewritten and polished and then offered to the people of God as worthy of God. Robert Frost, the poet, once gave a public reading of some of his poems and afterwards there was a time for Q&A and Frost was really enjoying hearing comments and questions from other people who appreciated thinking about things like rhyme scheme and meter and all the details of the poetic craft. But one woman in the audience wasn't tracking with them. Uh, when it was her turn at the mic, she said, um, surely, Mr. Frost, when you're writing one of your beautiful poems, you're not thinking about all these technical tricks. And in his trademark gravelly voice, he responded, Madam, I revel in them. <laughs> and we may be sure that the psalmist at least sometimes reveled in the technical aspects of their craft. Parallelism in Hebrew lines and wordplay and imagery and acrostics as they struggled to say well what they had to say. Some of you revel in musicianship, not only because the texts of sacred songs speak the truth about God, but because God is a music lover and you want to do it right. Some of you revel in acting. You enjoy being in the Passion Play or in Christian Youth Theater or sketches here in the worship service, not only because the story you have to tell is true, but because God made you in his image, a storyteller. And you take delight in doing it well. The kind of attention that David and his fellow psalmists paid to writing, David's son Solomon paid to the construction of a temple. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord, says our psalm. Primary reference was to the temple. Oh yes, you can worship God anywhere. But when Israel created a place of central worship, they made it a beautiful place. You can read about it in 1 Kings. And then when we come to the New Testament, there is no earthly temple. Worship was in the fields or in the homes, but that's not because the earliest Christians had a prejudice against houses of worship or about uh, aesthetics. It was just a matter of practical necessity. When the church did start creating worship spaces, buildings for the worship of God, they didn't dismiss aesthetics as if it was just an Old Testament concern. A medieval mason was working on a cathedral. At first, he treated it like any other job. In fact, he'd been angry and resentful when the master builder warned him that his work was not quite up to standard. He knew himself to be generally a more careful than most mason, but then he realized that the walls of a cathedral had to be not just good, but perfect. Partly because the structure was so large that anything just off-line, off-balance a little bit could threaten the stability of the structure, but also because the cathedral was for God. 
Well, I, I'm glad that 60 years ago, CCC didn't construct a big plain box for us to meet in. I'm glad that our vision statement includes a vision for God-glorifying music and drama for the arts. I'm glad that some of you can make beautiful sounds come out of these pipes or out of your vocal apparatus or from the soundboard. I'm glad that some people here have an eye for texture and color. And I'm glad that um, some of you have come to appreciate the literary artistry of the Psalms because God is beautiful. And therefore, worship of God is a matter of beauty. You could argue, if you want, with my concluding story by William Willimon, you could argue that all this talk of aesthetics is pretentious, snobbish. You could argue that practical considerations deserve more attention, that beauty can be overdone, overrated. All right. But don't miss the point of the story, all right? <laughs> he says, I wish you could have known Helena Pitts. For 30 years, she presided over the Broad Street Methodist Church Altar Guild. And Helena felt strongly that if it's worth doing for God, it's worth doing right. And right meant perfectly polished altar wear every Sunday, accolades wearing white gloves. The young male acolytes hated those gloves, but none of the young hooligans had the temerity to res resist Miss Helena on the issue of gloves. I recall vividly the Sunday after Epiphany when as clergy and choir were going outside, Helena with fire in her eyes came tearing out of the sanctuary, commanding the clergy, hold everything. Some fool thinks we're still green when it's the first Sunday in Lent. We waited until Helena had set things right. By some accounts, Helena was fastidious, fuzzy, uh, fussy, and compulsive about the setting for Sunday worship, and many's the time that I'm grateful that I'm now at a church far from Helena's critical eye. Here at my current church, I still get tired of every Monday minister and musician meetings. Here for an hour, we ministers and musicians meet and evaluate yesterday's service. And I get tired over uh, talking about the spacing of the draft of the bulletin. I get tired talking about the, whether a hymn is fitting or not. Musicians, get on my nerves. <laughs> Last Sunday, I met a couple who told me that they drive over 30 miles every Sunday to worship with us. When I asked, why on earth would you do that? They said, well, we're kind of picky about how we praise God. He asked them to elaborate, and they said, well, we feel insulted to be met by a pastor who appears to have slept in his clothes or to be given a bulletin that was, looks like it was used to clean the mimeograph machine, to be subjected to a choir that has just now seen the music or a preacher who was too self-consumed to do us the favor of preparing. Well, you can see their point. The casually formed service strikes people like them not as a sign of the pastor's humility, but as a mark of arrogance. You are unworthy of my preparation. 
More troubling is the possible implication that God is unworthy of our preparation. I, I may complain about the fastidiousness of my musicians, but I recall one of them, an organist, who when I complained about the excessiveness of her rehearsal on the organ outside my study, replied, this is Bach, the music deserves it. The God who has graciously convened us deserves the best we have to offer. If it's worth doing for God, it's worth doing right. The other day, inspecting with an electrician the attic high above the sanctuary, I noted the wonderful workmanship of the fitted beams. And then there, toward the base of one of those huge oak beams carved into the wood where nobody but God could read it, I read, John Scavoni, for the glory of God. Some unknown craftsman put a lifetime of skill into that beam that no one would ever see. Yet God sees. If it's worth doing for the glory of God, it's worth doing right. Let's pray. Father, we know from your word that all this talk about aesthetics can, in fact, be overdone. That what you seek more than anything is our hearts, unpolluted by rebellion and sin. We've kept close accounts with you so that when we come to the hour of worship or when we're worshiping throughout the day, we're doing so clean in your sight. We know that that's of the utmost importance. We know that evangelism and missions have a claim on our time and energy and on the church's budget. We know this. But I pray that today's message and the texts, especially from the psalmists, will also remind us that beauty has a claim on us. That you who made us in your likeness have given us the desires, the appreciation, the giftedness to make worship a matter of beauty. Help us. Help us to keep all of the concerns of your word in balance. Help us to uh, give you what you deserve. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.